Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Always hard seeing people go, but that's kind of the nature of things. Anyways, all right. Hey, um, if you have your Bibles, turn into Exodus chapter 1. So if you don't know where that is, just go to Genesis and turn right one book. So we were at the end of the book last month or last week, and now we're at the beginning of the book, or the second book from the beginning. Genesis, excuse me, Exodus. Um, so uh, it's probably been about a month or two before um, we were in Genesis. Well, it's been more than a month because we've been in <laughs> Revelation for a while. Anyways, we were in Genesis, uh, starting our traveling through the through the uh, the Bible again from cover to cover. And uh, so we went from Genesis to Revelation, and now we're back to Exodus. And so let's go, Lord, in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you, and Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we thank you for these children that were here. Lord, what a blessing they are. And, and uh, Lord, we pray that you would just uh, instill in their hearts a love for you and a knowledge of you and a relationship with you. And Lord God, I, I ask now that as we start our travel through the book of Exodus, Lord, that, Lord, uh, we wouldn't just look at it as a story of Moses and the children of Israel, but, Lord, we would find application for our own lives this, even this morning, Lord God. And I thank you that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and that, Lord, even these things were written for us uh, who are approaching the last days, Lord, that we can be encouraged, we can be taught, uh, and equipped through your word this morning. And so we ask your blessing upon the teaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you were here for our study of Genesis, or maybe you already know this, but Genesis is the book of beginnings. And uh, it's the beginning of very many things. It's the beginning of creation, of course, in the very beginning. Uh, it's also the beginning of mankind. We, we find out in the book of Genesis so many things, so many beginnings are told in the book of Genesis. And Genesis kind of starts with creation. It goes to Adam and Eve, their children. It, we, we, we talk about Noah, and you know he's a descendant of, of Adam and Eve. Of course, we all are, but um, descendant of Seth. And uh, anyways, we get to the story starts to focus. It starts to narrow down. And it narrows down on a man and his wife by the name of Abram and Sarai, which become Abraham and Sarah. And uh, the book of Genesis ends with the family of Jacob. And Jacob is the grandson of Abraham. And he and his children and their wives uh, went to Egypt. That's at the end of, chapter, uh, end of the book of Genesis. Twelve sons and their families. And the book of Exodus is a continuation of that story. In the book of Exodus, God is going to redeem a people from slavery, and he's going to raise up a nation, the nation of the children of Israel. God is also going to deliver the nation by the hand of a deliverer, and he, this deliverer is going to be raised up, and of course, we know that deliverer is Moses. There's so much uh, of the Old Testament is attributed or, or, or is focused on the life of Moses. And we'll be looking at that for quite a while. And there's so much things, so many things in there for us to glean from it. Um, so God's going to raise up a deliverer to deliver the children of Israel from bondage in Egypt. Moses is the deliverer. Now, the book of Exodus is titled Exodus. It comes from, uh, well, actually the Hebrew, the original Hebrew in uh, what they did with their books, the title of their books, they would take the first five words, or first few words of a book, that would be the title of the book. So in Hebrew, this actually would be the title of the book, and these are the names. So if you have your Bibles, turn to, and these are the names, chapter one. You know, that's kind of interesting, isn't it? Um, anyways, the Latin and the Greek is the word exodus, and uh, it means departure or outgoing. So this morning, we arrive at the book of departure. This morning, we're going to go into the book of going out. Isn't that neat? So, hey, um, as we go through, and we're going to look at chapters 1 and 2 this morning, I picked out six characteristics of God's dealings with the soon-to-be nation of Israel and Moses as well and his parents that I think we can apply to our lives this morning. I always like to look for application wherever I'm at in Scripture. And I think there's six characteristics of God's dealing with them that I think we can apply to our lives 
this morning. And so without further ado, let's get into the book here. Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. Now these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man in his household came with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All those were descendants of Jacob. All those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, for Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died, all his brothers, and all that generation. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied, and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. The first characteristic that we see, even in these first seven verses, is this. God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. Keep your fingers there and turn to Genesis chapter 46, just a few chapters over, uh, verses 2. Genesis 46, verse 2. Here God is speaking to Jacob as he's about to embark on his journey to Egypt. And he's probably a little bit worried about going to, he found out his brother or his son Joseph is alive. He thought he was dead and he's going to go see Joseph. And so in verse 2 of chapter 46 in Genesis, it says, Then God spoke to Israel, that's the other name for Jacob. God spoke to Israel in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. So he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make of you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. They went down with approximately, I think, 70 persons to begin with. By the time of the exodus from Egypt, we find out that there's a census in the book of Numbers. You don't need to turn there. But in the very first chapter of Numbers, verses 45 and 46, we're told that there was 603,550 adult males above 20 years old able to go to war. 603,550. Now that doesn't include males younger than 20 years old. It also doesn't include older males who are maybe past you know, fighting age, they were, you know, maybe retired folk or whatever. Older males are not included in that number. It doesn't include the men of the tribe of Levi. They weren't included in that census. And it doesn't include all the females, all the wives, the daughters, the mothers, example, for, you know, etc. I should say. Um, now, just, you know, we don't know exactly how many, but if you think about it, if each of those 603,550 men were married and had only one child, if all of them were married and had one child, that'd be 1.8 million people. If you extrapolate that numbers out and, and you, you can you know, wonder, well, they probably had more than one child or whatever, you can easily assume about 2 million, probably some scholars think closer to 3 million people by this time from those 70 people. God kept his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He had made a nation out of them. There's a theme that runs throughout scriptures, and you and I, we can observe it because we see the end of the story. We, can, we, we look at all these promises God made to the children of Israel and God made to different people, and we see that he keeps his promises. He keeps his word. In Joshua 21, verse 45, this is beautifully summed up. It says, Not a word failed of any good thing which the Lord had spoken to the house of Israel. All came to pass. Not one word failed. And for you and I, I think that should be an encouragement for us, something that we can apply, something that we can grab onto this morning. God is faithful to his promises. Look at 1 Corinthians 1.9. Paul says this, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We, have, uh, we serve a faithful God. Well, verse 8 of Exodus chapter 1 now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. This is approximately uh, 350 years after Jacob had went down uh, to Egypt with his sons and their wives. It's about 278 years after Joseph had died. And the, the Egyptians forgot how God had used that young Hebrew slave by the name of Joseph to save the entire nation from starvation for seven years, uh, during seven years of famine. They forgot that. 
They forgot how Joseph's wise and fair dealings with the Egyptian population, as well as the surrounding countries, amassed great wealth for Egypt because they were the only ones that had food in that whole area. All the rest of the nations didn't have food. So they would go to Egypt to buy food. So not only did Egypt have grain, but they amassed great wealth. Not only that, but the people of Egypt, eventually they ran out of money, and so they still needed to eat during the seven years. And so, so Joseph said, okay, trade us land, and we'll give you food. Give, give, the, give Pharaoh land, you know, property titles and stuff. We'll, give you, we'll keep you fed, you know. And uh, so not only did they amass great wealth, but the pharaohs, the, the rulers of Egypt, all property ownership was transferred to them. So Joseph, of course God was the one that was behind all that, but Joseph had done all these things. But by now, 350 years later, they had forgot about it. Or 278 years after Joseph's death, they forgot. You know, I think about our nation you know, our nation was founded. You read about the Declaration of Independence. You hear all the stories of our founding fathers. And we're getting to a point where history is being revised. And, and, you know, you wonder how long will it be before we forget how this nation was founded. I think we're getting close to that already. And it's only been a couple hundred years. Verse 9. So this is Pharaoh speaking. And he said to his people, look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply and it happen in the event of war, that they also join our enemies and fight against us, and so go up out of the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. It seems like already by now in this story, as we get to this point here, that the children of Israel were already being exploited as slaves, uh, heavily taxed, whatever was going on. Uh, there's some scholarly debate over who this Pharaoh is at this time. I, was, I heard different stories, and I, I don't really know. Um, but whoever it was, they were worried that a, about an attack from the north where the Hittites uh, up in the land of Canaan, they were worried, and that's, of course, where the children of Israel had originally came down from. Uh, they were worried that uh, if the Hittites attacked them, that the children of Israel would join forces with them. And so they'd have an enemy coming into the land and they'd have an enemy within the land fighting. And uh, so they were worried about that. And not only that, they were worried that they would lose that whole population of slaves because they were exploiting and they were taking advantage of them. They didn't want to lose that population. So they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. Now on the surface, if you look at that, you go, well, I, I, I mean, I don't agree with it, but Pharaoh had his reasons for being suspicious of the children of Israel and for mistreating them. But you know, in reality, it wasn't just Pharaoh coming up with that plan. It was demonically influenced. Satan, it was inspired by Satan. Ever since God told Eve in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3, that one day her seed would crush the serpent's head, that Satan has tried to wipe out the children of Israel to prevent that from happening throughout history in order to thwart the coming of the Messiah. And then the Messiah came. And now that the Messiah has come, he's again trying to wipe out the nation of Israel to protect, to prevent his second coming to reign and rule physically from Jerusalem, as we saw in chapter 20 of Revelation. So there's definitely a demonic influence behind what's going on. And we've seen it all throughout history. Verse 12, but the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, and they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage, in mortar, in brick, and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. Adam Clark is an old commentator from probably 100, 150 years ago. He said this, As they afflicted them, so they multiplied, and so they grew, that is, in proportion uh, to their afflictions was their prosperity. And had their sufferings been greater, their increase would have been still more abundant. The more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied, the more they prospered. You know, historically, when the church has been afflicted, that's when it has grown the most. 
Sometimes I worry about myself personally, my own walk, but even as a church and as a nation, it's like, you know, we're, we're so complacent right now. And, and, and growth typically happens when there's affliction. In fact, someone has, and I don't know who it is, someone's made this statement, the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. Paul says this in Romans 8:28, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. All things, even the bad things, even the, the, even the, the afflictions that we go through, or the persecutions we have to go through. God's not the author of those things, but he works those things for his purposes, for a good purpose, for those of us that are called according to his purpose, those of us that love him. And here's the second characteristic. Nothing in our lives is wasted by God. Nothing that go, you're going through in your life right now is wasted by God. God sometimes uses afflictions, persecutions, lack of contentment, or he makes us uncomfortable to prepare us for a new work that he wants to do through us. And you can see that evidenced in the Bible. In Acts chapter 8, remember the first martyr of the church was Stephen. And it says there in verse 1 of chapter 8 in Acts, it says, at, the time, at that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So there's all these, the church is growing, and, and all these people are coming to faith in the Lord, and there's so many disciples, and, and, but now there's this persecution, they're all being scattered. And that sounds bad. And it probably was distressing to those who were scattered. But it continues in Acts 8, verse 3. It says, as for Saul, who later became the apostle Paul, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles, uh, excuse me, I'm reading the wrong notes here. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. It was good. God used it. God turned that thing around, and the word of God was spread. And they probably would have stayed in Jerusalem if they hadn't been distressed, if they hadn't been made uncomfortable. But they went out, and God used it. Well, here in Exodus, God's preparing his people to be delivered from Egypt. He's giving them a lack of contentment, a desire for something better. You know, in the early years, maybe not the very first years that they came down to Egypt, because, you know, they came to escape famine, and, and maybe, you know, seven years later, the famine's over and stuff. Maybe then it still was kind of tempting to go back. But over the time, they got acclimated to being in Egypt, and things were good. In fact, you know, later on when they're in the, traveling through the wilderness, they're like, man, we miss the leeks and the onions, and, you know, the, the good food of Egypt and stuff. And uh, in the early years, even if God wanted to deliver them from Egypt at that time, they probably wouldn't even have wanted to go. It's like, man, I got my investments here in Egypt. You know, I, I've, I've, got, I've, got, I've got family. I've got th things are going pretty good here. They probably wouldn't have wanted to be delivered. You know, Physical ailments, loss of loved ones, lack of material wealth, persecution. You know, we, you know, and some of these are terrible. And we look at these as being terrible, yet God can use these, and God does, in fact, use these things in our life to give us a yearning for heaven. Listen, if I had the vacation home of my dreams, if I had everything perfect and my retirement was just set and everything was perfect, I'll be honest with you, I'd be like, you know, I'd like to enjoy that a little while before the Lord returns. But if I'm going through hardship, if I, you know, I'm going paycheck by paycheck, I'm not saying that's good, but you know, if you're going through these things, man, I'm looking forward to heaven. My aching body, man, after VBS is every night, it's like, I was just like dead, you know, it's like, I can't wait for Jesus to return, get a new body. God uses those things. You know, and sometimes God uses afflictions, persecutions, a lack of contentment to get us out of our complacency and into a place where he can use us for a special purpose. I'll give you an example of my own life. Um, when we first moved here, Teresa and I, we were attending a Calvary Chapel, a couple different Calvary Chapels in California. And when we came back here, we, we moved here originally in 1990. 
and there was two Calvary chapels in Minnesota. They were both up in the Twin Cities. One of them sounded like they weren't, because I called them, one of them sounded like they weren't even really doing anything at that time. And so, um, actually I think there was only one Calvary Chapel at that time, and, and they didn't sound, it sounded like they were kind of like, weren't sure what they were doing and stuff. So we started looking around Rochester trying to find a church like Calvary Chapel, and we didn't find anything like Calvary Chapel. We found some good churches, but nothing quite like Calvary Chapel. So eventually we found a church that we kind of settled into. It was the best we could find. They had programs for the kids and stuff. And so, so we got into it and, uh, and we got involved and stuff. But you know, over time, and I didn't notice it at the time. I, I, looking back now, I, I recognize it. But over time, I felt like I was getting kind of complacent in my walk. And uh, I don't blame it on, on, on the church we were going to, but I think it kind of had an influence. And after a while, we started to grow, we had a lack of contentment. Not that, not that you know, some people, they come to a church and it's like, you, you got to minister to me, and if you don't minister to me, I'm out of here type of attitude. That wasn't our attitude. We, got, we plugged in and served wherever we were at. That wasn't the case. But we saw a watering down of the teaching of the word. We saw a, a, a focus on trying to become a megachurch, trying to do things just to please people and a moving away from, from God's word. I mean, we saw that. And so we were starting to just grow, you know, uh, discontent. And it was at that time that I did some searching on the internet and I found out that there was now another Calvary Chapel. We contacted them up in St. Paul. We got involved with them. Through getting involved with them, the Lord called me to lead Calvary Chapel Rochester through that. And it wouldn't have happened if we had been plumb satisfied in the other church. I would have never thought about it because everything was just cozy for us. And so maybe God's taking you through something that right now, and you're like, man, I don't know why he's doing that. Well, I want to encourage you. Maybe God's trying to move you into a new place in, his life, in your life to minister for a purpose. He's got a plan and a purpose. So nothing in our lives is wasted by God. Verse 15. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Shipra, Shipra, and the name of the other, Pua. And he said, when you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stools, that sounds comfortable, doesn't it, ladies? Um, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. Now, it's interesting that we're given the names of these two specific midwives, Shifra and Pua. Their names, by the way, Shipfra, that, I don't know if you ladies or anyone's looking for naming a, a girl, Shipfra, but it means fair. Pua, I mean, that'd be kind of a, they'd be, they'd be teased a lot, but their name, that name means splendid. There's a reason why their names are recorded in the Bible for all history's sake. Now, if you're a Bible passage underliner, some people are, they love to, they love to write in their Bibles, or you like to highlight, um, or maybe you like to highlight in the Bible a person next to you, you can go ahead and do that if you want. Um, verse 17, if you're going to do it, that's the verse to do it. Verse 17, but the midwives feared God. I think it's such a key, a key point in the scriptures. The midwives feared God. This happens to be the first case of civil disobedience recorded in the Bible. And does that mean you and I are to be civilly disobedient to authority as well? Paul in his day, the Apostle Paul, he was under the Roman government. The Roman government was very ungodly. It was a pagan government. And yet during that, even under that kind of government, Paul wrote in Romans 13.1, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. And he wrote that when Rome was in power. You see, when the authority tries to get you to do something contra contrary to God's authority, which is higher, you have to make a choice. And the, the right choice, of course, is to obey God. We see an example of that in Acts chapter 4, verse 19. Uh, 
Peter and John are brought before the Sanhedrin and they're commanded not to preach in the name of Jesus Christ anymore. You can't do that. It's illegal. You'll be punished for saying those things. And they said, but Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. And they went right on preaching the word. They were disobedient. Um, I have Dutch ancestry. Both my parents were born and raised in the Netherlands. They both were there during World War II. And uh, my dad's parents were faced with having to turn over their oldest children. My dad had 16 brothers and sisters. He's the third oldest of 16, 17. One of them died when they were three years old. Um, so after his sister died, he was the second oldest at that point. But anyways, his parents were forced with the choice of having to turn over their, their oldest boys to the Nazis towards the end of the war because the Nazis, they needed more soldiers basically. And so they were taking, they occupied countries, they would take the youth that were like 15, 16 years old boys and they would ship them to Germany to their youth, uh, Hitler youth things to, be, to make them soldiers basically to continue the, 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 war, the war effort or whatever. And so had my grandparents been obedient, they would have, had, they would have turned over my dad and, and his older brother. My dad was about 15 and a half years old at the time and his, older, his brother was a couple years older. My, parent, my grandparents uh, worked on an arrangement with their neighbors across the street and my dad and his brother hid in their attic for a year and a half. Year and a half hidden in an attic. Um, they came out, obviously, you know, during the nighttime to eat something, but I mean, they pretty much spent a year and a half there in this attic hidden. My mom's family, her extended family, they hid Jews. Um, in, they lived out in the country and they hid Jews. Their entire family was involved in some way uh, from them that those that actually hid them in their homes to others. The whole extended family was involved. They would smuggle food rationing cards to the family because to, to, you had to feed all these other people and food was rationed at that point. So civil disobedience runs in my family. <laughs> but it says here, the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and saved the male children alive? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. So that kind of raises a moral dilemma, doesn't it? Did they lie? We're not told if they did lie. There could in fact be some truth to their answer. Josephus, who's a Jewish historian many years ago, he wrote this. Now it happened that the Egyptians grew delicate and lazy as to painstaking and gave themselves up to other pleasures and in particular to the love of gain. So the women had kind of grown soft, so to speak, if you could think, about, think of it that way. The Hebrew women, on the other hand, they're working. They're, they're, they're doing all kinds of labor and stuff and, and they're probably, they probably were more lively, probably were you know, to, to some extent more healthy and stronger, definitely than the Egyptian woman. So maybe they didn't lie, but you know, we're not told, but I'm guessing they probably did lie. I'm guessing they probably did. And look at verse 20. Therefore, God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very mighty. And so it was because the midwives feared God that he provided households for them. In other words, because the midwives feared God, God provided families, husbands and children for these midwives. Here's characteristic number three that I've found in this pattern that I want to point out. God blesses those that fear him. God blesses those that fear them. And you might be sitting there right now thinking, wait a minute, isn't lying a sin? How could God bless their sin? Well, there's a couple reasons or a couple things I want to point out. First of all, it doesn't say that God blessed their lying. It says he blessed their actions in saving human life, motivated by their fear of God, which was greater than the fear of the king of Egypt. He blessed them for their fear. Second, put yourself in their position. What would you have done? You know, if you were hiding Jews during World War II, 
knowing that their capture meant that they would be sent to the Nazi death camps and some Nazi soldiers knocked on your door, would you lie to save them? See, sometimes it's kind of easy to be like an armchair, you know, commentator or an armchair person. Well, I wouldn't do that. Well, put yourself in that position. And you knew that they were going to be going to their exterminate, to their murder. Right? You won't say extermination, their murder. What would you do? In my opinion, okay, this, is the, this isn't thus saith the Lord. In my opinion, God saw the motivation of their heart, and in his grace, he blessed them for their fear of him. So does that mean as long as my motives are good, you know, I can tell little white lies because I don't want to hurt somebody, you know? I mean, we can give all kinds of excuses for our sin. The answer is no. Paul told us that we're to speak the truth in love to one another. We're to be truthful with one another. But this particular instance is a life or death situation. It's a life or death situation. We see examples of that in other places in the scripture too. In 2 Samuel 15, David, his son Absalom is rebelled and, and Absalom wants to kill David, his father, and wants to kill all of, all of David's men that are with him and stuff. And David tells Hushai, the archite, to lie to Absalom in order to defeat the wicked counsel of Ahithophel. Um, it's in 2 Samuel 15 if you want to look at that later on. Um, that was also a life or death situation. It wasn't hurting, you know, spare someone's hurt feelings. I don't want them to be offended. Or, no, this was a life or death situation. Hebrews 11 verse 31, it says, By faith the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. Remember they came to her house and said, which way did the spies go? They went that way, <laughs> you know. She lied. And this was, again, a life or death situation. So don't mistake what I'm saying. I'm not saying as long as your motors are good, God's going to look the other way. I'm not saying that. But I am saying in this case that we're reading this morning and in other cases, God did see their heart and he did bless them for fearing him above men. And you might say, you, maybe you're still struggling with that. You know, <laughs> I don't know if I agree with Pastor Don, what he's saying there. Okay. Let's just, we'll just look at this verse here and we'll, we'll end that. Because you could, I mean, this, be, this could become a, a major study in itself. If you're still struggling with the fact that they lied and yet God blessed them, look at what I have here, Psalm 103, verses 10 through 11. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. Again, God blesses those who fear him. And he doesn't treat us as we deserve. Praise God he doesn't. All right, verse 22. So Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. So obviously he realized he was not getting anywhere with the Hebrew midwives. So he deputizes all his people throughout the land. He says, when you ever you see a newborn Jewish baby and it's a male, cast him into the river. We get to chapter 2 now, verse 1. And a man of the house of Levi went and took as wife a daughter of Levi. So the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. I heard someone having a conversation before the service started. They were talking about the price of Levi's. And here we have a man of the house of Levi and a daughter of the house of Levi. So these guys had Levi jeans in their closet. Um, anyways, no, I'm just kidding. Um, they're descended from Levi, okay, the priestly tribe. Um, and later on, by the way, we're going to find out that their names are Amram and Jochebed. And uh, so it says here that they, the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that it was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. That used to bug me. I used to go, well, if the baby was ugly, what would she have done then? <laughs> of course, for any mother, their babies are beautiful, right? Every mother's baby is beautiful. And, uh, but that beautiful, that word beautiful is a Hebrew word, tobe. And it means good, but it's used in very, in the widest sense. It's used in a lot of different applications. Not only can it mean like good as in good looking, but it can also mean pleasant. Um, or excuse me, it can mean pleasant, again, what mother thinks her, she has an ugly baby. But it also can mean valuable in estimation. Valuable in estimation. And I think that's what it's alluding to. By the way, Moses was not their first child. 
They already had a daughter by the name of Miriam. We'll be introduced to her later on. She's probably about 12 years old at this time. And they also had a son by the name of Aaron, who was about three years older than Moses. And so he was already beyond that age when this edict was issued. Moses happened to be born after the edict of the king of Egypt. And so I believe what this is saying is that she was, he was valuable in the sense that all human life, of course, is valuable. And also valuable in the sense that Jochebed, his mother, believed that God had a special plan and a special purpose for her child. In fact, we're told that in Hebrews 11, verse 23, it says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents, because they saw he was a beautiful child, and they were not afraid of the king's command. Verse 3, But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, daubed it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. And his sister stood afar off, to know what would be done to him. What's interesting about this verse here is that that Hebrew word for ark, says she made an ark of bulrushes, it's only used in one other place in the Bible, and you guessed it, the story of Noah's ark. This is the only other place it's used. Now, the scroll of Genesis had not been written yet. In fact, Moses is going to write the first five books of the Bible. So it hadn't been written yet, the Bible, all the stories of creation, all the things that Moses recorded later on in life had been relayed faithfully down by word of mouth from parent to child, a parent to child, a parent to child, faithfully passed down verbally from Hebrew parent to child. And so Jochebed, his mother, knew how the Lord had spared Noah and his family from the flood in an ark, and in faith, she builds an ark. Man, if God can do it once, he can do it again. And so she builds an ark, a little ark for her baby that she believes will spare him for death. Now, she doesn't just send it sailing down the river. You ever stuck stuff in the river and we'll just kind of watch it go down and you run down to see if it's, you know, where it goes and stuff? She didn't do that, okay? Send it off sailing. Um, she probably put it in some backwater among the reeds where the flow isn't going through and has Miriam keep an eye on the tiny ark. Now, one thing is interesting, the Nile River is known for crocodiles. And, uh, but, again, she, the, where she placed the ark was where the princess of Egypt would bathe. And I can bet the princess of Egypt wouldn't bathe where there's crocodiles. So I'm guessing that this is an area where there were no crocodiles, or known, that they weren't known to be anyways. Um, so, and it's interesting, I was looking at some of the commentaries and some of the people think that she purposely placed the basket where the princess would be, and they've got lots of things that they say about that, and I don't know. Nobody really knows, right? We, don't, we, we just have what's here in scriptures. But this I do know, Jochebed was a great woman of faith. And we're gonna see more reasons why I say that in just a moment here, verse five. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and her maidens walked along the riverside, and when they saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Now there's a Jewish myth, again it's a myth, um, associated with this story, and the myth goes like this. When the queen of Egypt, or when the princess of Egypt, looked into the basket, an angel pinched baby, the baby to make him cry, to cause her to have compassion and have that natural affection. Because who, anybody, you see a baby crying, it's like, oh, you know, you want to pick up a little baby that's crying, right? And uh, so that's their story. They're sticking with it. I don't know if it's true or not. Um, but it's interesting. This is a, a perfect example of natural affection, what the Bible calls natural affection. 2 Timothy 3.3, the King James Version says this, in the last days men will be without natural affection. I, I, you, know, I, you probably have read them too. I, I was going to give some examples, but they're too heartbreaking to even bring up. But it, it seems like a day doesn't go by that you read in the news about some mother 
either allowing some terrible thing to their children or doing some terrible thing to their children or, or fathers too, not just mothers. And, and to me, it's like we're getting towards the last days because you're seeing it more and more that people are without that natural affection. But this princess had it at the time. So this baby cries. Did an angel pinch her? I don't know, maybe. Verse 7. Uh, then she said, uh, oh, then his sister said, because she was watching this whole thing taking place, to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call to thee, verse 7, shall I go and call to thee a nurse of the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for thee? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. And the maid went and called the child's mother. And the Pharaoh, Pharaoh's daughter said unto her, take this child away and nurse it for me, and I will give thee thy wages. And the woman took the child and nursed it. Here's characteristic number four. God is able to do exceedingly, exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. I hope that encourages you this morning. Paul said that in Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be the glory in church by Jesus Christ to all generations forever and ever Amen. What a beautiful picture here. Jacob, or excuse me, Jochebed trusted God with the life of her baby boy. What a step of faith to build that little ark, to place that little ark in the water to save his life. And God showed up big time above what she could ask or think. I doubt that she had any idea that things would turn out the way they did where the, the princess would say, would you nurse your own baby? She didn't know, of course. And I'll even pay you to nurse them. God is able to do exceedingly, exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. Verse 10. And the child grew, and she brought him unto Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she called his name Moses, and she said, because I drew him out of the water. Now, Josephus says that the name of this princess, Pharaoh's daughter, was Thermuthis, Thermuthis, and that she had no children of her own. What that means is that Moses would become the parent, the heir to the throne of Pharaoh when he passed away. He would be the next in line to be Pharaoh. But Remember, we were talking about Pharaoh's attitude about the Hebrews. Remember, he was suspicious. He wanted to mistreat him. You can bet that they did not try to teach Moses about his Hebrew roots. You can bet that they were trying to erase any history of the, of the Hebrews in his heart. You know, they're, they're raising him up to be an Egyptian. In fact, Stephen in Acts 7.22 says, Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. And yet, in just a couple verses here, in a moment, we're going to see that an adult Moses choose to identify with his brethren, with his Hebrew brethren. In fact, Hebrews 11.24 says this, By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. So let me ask you this. When and where was this instilled in Moses? When and where? He didn't learn it from the Egyptians. You can bet that they probably didn't even want him to remember anything about the Hebrew, his Hebrew background. When and where was this instilled in Moses? That as an adult, he would do what we just read here in Hebrews 11. And I'm going to submit to you, from the moment baby Moses was given back to Jochebed to nurse him, she realized she had this small window of opportunity to pour into this baby's life about God, about Yahweh, the God of the true God, the God of Israel. You can bet as she's nursing him, she's probably saying, Yahweh is Lord. Yahweh is Lord. Egypt's nothing. 
the gods of Egypt. They're false. The maker of heaven and earth, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is Yahweh. Yahweh has a plan and a purpose for your life. You know, we don't know how long Jochebed had to nurse Moses. Some people say, some historians or chronologers think that it was between two and three years old, or two and three years. That's a small window. And you can bet she took advantage of that window. This is why we poured so much resources. It wasn't cheap to do what we did. And so much effort into VBS this past week. Because we have a small window of opportunity with these children, with your children, the children in the neighborhood, to teach them that there is a God and that he loves them. I didn't get much sleep last night. <laughs> uh, but that's why children's ministry is so important. It, you know, some people, they think children's ministry, you know, well, we got to do something with the kids because they're, they're going to interrupt the parents. And so let's ship them off here, have someone watch them and play games with them. That's not our attitude here. We want to use that opportunity to instill the love of Christ in them, to teach them. This is the, this is the window that we have. You parents and grandparents, man, we have a small window to instill in our children that Yahweh is Lord, that Jesus is Lord, that God has a plan and a purpose for their lives. Ignatius, a guy, a Jesuit by the name of Ignatius Loyola, it's, it's been attributed to him, but also to Aristotle, said this, give me the child for the first seven years and I'll give you the man. I think there's so much truth to that. In fact, Proverbs 22.6 says this, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. You and I, parents and grandparents, we have that small window of opportunity to instill a knowledge of and a relationship with Jesus Christ in that child. It's limited. Your time is limited. Don't squander it. And don't think that they're too young to start learning. Some people say, well, you know what? They, they're not going to understand this anyway. I'll wait till they're a little bit older and I'll start teaching. No, no, no. The moment, I mean, it was funny. During VBS last night, you know, during the program, for those of you that weren't involved with it, whenever they would talk about God, the children were supposed to say, wow, God. And so sometimes we'd miss our cues, but, you know, we try to you know, wow, God, God loves you. Wow, God. Well, the last night, um, we didn't have anybody to take care of, uh, or for a while there anyways, for whatever reason, I was holding Jude at the end of the program. We were in the back, and Jude can barely talk. And whenever the kids up here would go, wow, God, I, I hear him going, wow, God. <laughs> and I'm like, this guy, he can barely talk, and he's saying, wow, God. In fact, Luke and Martha, I told them about it. They go, yeah, last night, that's all he said. He said that till he fell asleep in his bed. Wow, God, wow, God, wow, God. The kids are not too young to instill that in them. I want to encourage you guys. It's so important. Um, quickly, we're going to look at, you know what? I think we're going to stop here. It's getting what's. It's getting kind of late. We're going to pick up. I apologize for that. Well, maybe I don't apologize for that. But we're going to pick up uh, from verse 11, and we're going to continue on to the next chapter. We're going to look at that fifth characteristic. Actually, there's six characteristics. So we're going to look at two more characteristics and uh, dig into that a little bit more in depth. I don't want to. I don't want to breeze through this. But uh, anyways, hey, um, would you stand up? This probably is a good place to stop because I was just looking at my notes here. Between verse 10 and verse 11, there's a gap of 40 years. So that's a good place to stop. Um, I encourage you, by the way, this week, read up, study, look at chapter the rest of chapter 2 where we left off. We left off at verse 10. Look at the rest of the chapter and dig into chapter 3. In fact, there's a fascinating passage. We'll, we'll see if we get to it next week or not um, in chapter 3. And it has to do with children again, too. But uh, this morning, I just want to encourage you. If you're going through a time of, 
maybe God's kind of stirred things up in your in your life, not necessarily in your heart, but in your life, or maybe it is in your heart. You know, it's like things are just not the way they used to be. There's some, there's just like there's turmoil, or or it's like man, the boat's getting rocked right now, and I'm don't know what's going on here. I want to encourage you. Maybe God's using it for a purpose to either move you into some plan or purpose of his, a ministry he wants you to do, or maybe he's trying to kind of shake you out of some complacency. So I want to just encourage you this, this morning, nothing, God, none of that stuff is wasted. God uses those things in our lives for, for a purpose. So I want to encourage you in that. I want to encourage you that God keeps his promises. We have the, the whole story of the children of Israel in Scripture. And, you know, um, God has been faithful to Israel. Uh, Israel's a nation again. Jesus is returning. He's going to deal with the nation of Israel once more. And that's encouraging to me because uh, they didn't they disappear off the face of the earth not to come back. They're back they have their own nation, their, 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 their customs, they have their language, they have their coinage, everything that they had before, they've got it again. Why? Because God's faithful to his promises. And if God's faithful to them, God's going to be faithful to you as well this morning. God bless you. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I just, uh, I just thank you for the, the lessons that we can see in the life of Moses and uh, in the life of Jochebed, his mother, what a great woman of faith. Lord, I pray that, Lord, we would, uh, these truths that we've looked at this morning, Lord, that you would just burn them into our hearts, Lord, that they would be there, that we would draw on those truths as we go through this week and, in fact, the rest of our lives, Lord God. May it impact us as we obey your word and as we apply it in our own hearts and our own lives. And so I thank you this morning. Lord, I thank you for each and every person here. Lord, I do pray for those that are going through some turmoil right now. Lord, I pray that they would continue to look to you and to see and to know that you're faithful and that, Lord, also to know that, Lord, even those things are not wasted and that you have a plan and a purpose even through what they're going through. Lord, may they be encouraged this morning. So we thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.